Welcome to the Seashore Church Message of the Week. This message is designed to bring more of heaven into your world today. For more resources like this, or to learn more about our church, visit seashorechurch.com. You all have got to stop reading my sermon notes before you get up here and prophesy. It's time to go back. Literally the title of my message. It's time to go back. And uh, even just, I like the confirmation of prophetic words because I actually think um, it helps people. So if we get a word of knowledge for healing and the thing that the person got a word of knowledge for is the exact condition that you have, it's always good for you to respond and go, yeah, that's me, I have that. It does two things. One, it helps you access the healing that God wants as a result for you as a result of that, but it also encourages the person that got the word to know, oh, okay, what I heard was God, and it actually makes us more attuned to the voice of God in our own hearts for the next time we hear it. So we, we like a response to the word. Um, the prophetic word that, that people get because it kind of helps in both of those areas. So, Joyce, that's Psalm 103. That's literally lit, written on his shirt from Team Rafa. That's the verse from Team Rafa. He's not wearing it now, but he has one at home, which was the running team that we put together to celebrate God as our healer for all those people that have been healed of cancer. Um, but that he kissed my heart. I don't know if I put that part on it because I had a bunch of dudes running around with shirts saying he kissed my heart. And I don't know. I wanted to do it, but there's a side of me that's like, maybe I'll just put the healing part on it. So I can't remember whether I included that or not, but that scripture is written on his shirt as he ran that half marathon, which was awesome, and then promptly retired from running altogether, didn't you, Norm? He went from running half marathons to golf carts. That's what he went to. Smart man right there. And uh, yeah, so how you guys doing? You doing good? I'm glad you came. Um, this morning, I, I kind of want to get right into it. If you brought your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 16. Don't put it up on the screen yet, but if you brought your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 16, which is where we're, we're going to start. I'm actually working on a, a bit of a series, and maybe this is uh, the first part of it. Now, when we do series, I may do part one now and part two Four weeks later, depending on who else is preaching, you never really know what you're going to get. And uh, Seashore Church is like a box of chocolates. You never know who you're going to get. Preaching-wise, you may not even get preaching. You may just get worship and some prophetic words and some activations, and who knows? I kind of like that. Anybody uncomfortable with that lack of structure? I am, and it's a good place to be there. Sometimes it's good when God makes you a little bit uncomfortable. But I'm working on a bit of a series in my own study. We'll see how much of this becomes messages because sometimes God is showing you things just for you, not necessarily to preach to other people. But it's on origin stories. Origin stories. I remember, you know, when you, a lot of the superhero movies or some of the ones that you may like, they got to a time when they just kept running out of things to talk about, so they went back and did all these origin stories like, X-Men origins, Wolverine origins, all these different origin stories. And we watched one on TV the other day, She-Hulk, I guess it's her origin story. Worst story, worst. The series is going to be awful. Don't even bother watching it if uh, it's my own personal opinion. But it got me thinking about this idea of origin stories. You know, there's a lot of people in the Bible 
that have origin stories. And God, what I, what I love about the way uh, the Bible is presented to us is it does not gloss over people's beginnings. He doesn't gloss over their middles and it doesn't gloss over the end. The Bible's not afraid to tell where people came from. And sometimes it's important to know what you've been saved from just as much as important as what you've been saved into. Now, what you've been saved into is actually more important. But origin stories sometimes have a lot to do with who we are today. I am a product of my past and then a product of a couple of things. I'm a product of my past and my upbringing. First and foremost, my encounter with Jesus that transformed me from the inside out. But to deny where I came from would kind of lack a little bit of perspective on what God's called me to now. So this idea of origins, I'm always fascinated when I look in the Bible and, and the stories that we know about some of these great heroes of the Bible. But if you, and you read these stories and go, man, what, what a man of faith, what a woman of faith. But when you read where they came from, the story that I just read looks nothing like their origin story. The, the David that cut off the head of Goliath doesn't look anything like the guy in the backside of a desert looking after his father's sheep. <laughs> the Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, certainly looks nothing like the guy that was killing Christians prior to that. So what is it with these origin stories? One of my heroes of the Bible is this man by the name of Elijah. He's an Old Testament prophet, one of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, and one of my favorite Bible stories, if you're allowed to have favorite Bible stories, are you allowed to have favorites? It's like having a favorite child, right? They're all your favorites. Well, probably one of my favorite Bible stories is the prophet Elijah on this place called Mount Carmel, not Caramel, Mount Carmel. And on the top of Mount Carmel, he has this in encounter with a nation that has turned their backs on God and are beginning to worship Baal, which is this false idol demon God. And he has this encounter on the top of a mountain. It's just Elijah and 450 prophets of Baal. And it's like this epic contest of whose God is going to answer by fire. Many of you have known the story. I'm not going to get into that story for right now, but it is probably the best example in the Bible that I can think of of what I call God confidence. Do you know what God confidence is? It means that wherever I'm stuck, whatever situation I am, I just know that I know that I know that God's going to show up for me. I know that He's going to show up, and when God shows up, He answers by fire. He doesn't just come and show up and go, here's some advice of what you might want to do. The God that I serve is the God who answers by fire. And so Elijah knew, one, if God doesn't show up, I'm dead. I don't have a chance here. But he was so confident that God was going to show up and show off that he has this epic duel. Spoiler alert, God does show up. God does answer by fire. And 450 prophets of Baal get killed instead of Elijah. It's this incredible story. But where did that kind of God confidence come from? Do you ever read about some people's great faith in the Bible and you're like, how did that guy or how did that girl get to the place where they were able to have that much confidence when the pressure's on. I mean, it's kind of easier to have confidence when worship is as great as it was this morning, and you're in a community of believers, and you've got people around you who maybe think like you do, worship like you do, believe like you do. And I think sometimes we get in this place of, 
well, maybe God can pay my electric bill this week. And it's this little bit of confidence. It's a great faith environment, but it only stirs up this little bit of faith in us. But yet the picture the Bible gives us of faith is men and women in horrible circumstances, but with great faith, great God confidence. You feel like it'd be the other way around. I need the environment to make me feel a certain way. I need to get in a place of faith in order for me to have faith, yet these people were in the very center of devastation and desolation where there was no faith at all except what God was doing in them. And I read these stories and I go, that's what I want. I want to know that I don't need the place to give me the faith. I want to have the God confidence inside of me that I change the place where I am. You see, for Elijah on Mount Carmel, it was a place of faithlessness. But as soon as God turned up, trust me, it became a, great, a place of great faith. So I want to start this story, a bit of Elijah's origin story. Maybe not necessarily Elijah's full background because we don't have stories about his childhood or anything like that. But I want to show you a little bit of probably where that kind of God confidence came from. And this story begins with a person by the name of Ahab. Ahab was the king of Israel at the time that Elijah shows up on the scene. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 29, we'll go ahead and read on the screens or in your Bibles if you brought your Bibles, if you look around the microphones. It says, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. How many of you would like to have that as your reputation in a permanent Bible, right? He not only considered it trivial to commit the sons of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ephbaal, king of the Sidonians. I want you to remember that. Jezebel, daughter of Ephbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Jezebel was from Sidon because her father was king of the Sidonians. In fact, your father even has the name Baal in his name. That's how much this guy is committed to worship of demon idols. The idol was named Baal, and Baal is even in her father's name. And he came from this place called Sidon. That's where Jezebel came from. That is who the king of Israel married, connected himself to, and in doing so, connected the whole nation of Israel to a person whose origin is from a father who served the Baal so much he had it even written into his name. We find out later a little bit more about Jezebel. It doesn't tell us here. It's just that she married someone who was the daughter of a person who was named after a demon who worshipped idols. What we find out later is during this period, Jezebel began to kill off all of the prophets of God systematically. She was going through the nation, killing off as many as she could find. You see, this is the plan of the enemy. Sometimes you've heard this term, the Jezebel spirit, and I know there's a lot of confusion about that. Here's what the Jezebel spirit does. One, it seeks to control over godly authority. 
See, Ahab was God's appointed person at the time to rule the nation. Ahab had a choice. You can serve God or you can choose to follow the ways of your evil wife and serve the Baals. He had a choice. Ahab chose poorly. And as soon as he aligned himself with something other than what God had provided for him, that alignment sought to usurp the godly authority that God wanted for Israel. That's what the Jezebel spirit does. The second thing a Jezebel spirit does, when we say a Jezebel spirit, it doesn't mean the person of Jezebel necessarily. Even Revelation calls Jezebel by name all the time. It's not a reference necessarily to the person in the story. It's representative of the spirit that the person operated under. So when you hear the Jezebel spirit, Jezebel is the personification of what this spirit does by what she did to Ahab and thus did to the nation of Israel. So when we say Jezebel spirit, that spirit still exists today, and the same thing it did then, it wants to do now. It wants to usurp, to seize control over godly authority. The second thing that spirit wants to do is it wants to silence the prophets. Those who speak the word of the Lord are silenced. There can be no dissenting opinion. It's Jezebel and nothing else. There is no other argument. There is nothing else. Silence the prophets. And the third thing, it always leads to idol worship. Forced idol worship. I don't know that she necessarily forced people to worship Baal, but when there's no other options, you've got to worship something, right? If I can silence the prophets, idol worship is right off the back of it. You know what's encouraging about this? This It's kind of a backwards encouragement about her killing all the prophets. The encouragement is there were so many prophets. Like it wasn't just Elijah. She had to go around. That took her some time to kill all the prophets. And even though she was killing them by the hundreds, there were still a hundred that this guy Obadiah saved and hid in a cave because he, he didn't want them all killed. But I'm like, there's hundreds of prophets. They're everywhere. Sometimes we picture Old Testament Israel as they're just being Elijah, then Elisha, and that was it. No, no. There were prophets everywhere. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. It was already happening in the nation. So when people stand up for the first time and share prophetic words, which I love, and the, the unlocking of it, I, I love when people share words and they're like, really? Like, that's why I want the confirmation. If there is a confirmation, you don't have to help the person along if they share a prophetic word and it wasn't for you. And you're like, yes, that's for me. Don't do that because that's actually not helping, right? But if it is for you, stick up your hand and say, yeah, that's for me. And it encourages the person to know you did hear from God. That's how we unlock the prophetic. That's how we activate it in people today. But in Israel, there were so many of them. So many people that were hearing and obeying God. But yet Jezebel wants to silence all of them. So God sees what's happening in the nation. In 1 Kings chapter 17, this is where Elijah shows up on the scene. This is God's response to the Jezebel spirit infiltrating the nation and the nation just deciding we're going to worship Baal instead of God. Said so Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here eastward and hide in the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. Talk about a mic drop moment. There will not be rain or food for several years 
I'm going to a ravine. Like literally, just that's all he said, drops the mic, leaves. Some people want to be prophets like that. I'm going to go to the next church. Say my word, drop the mic, and leave. Don't misinterpret what's happening in this scripture. So then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food. <laughs> I've directed the ravens to supply you with food. Like, you're in this place, and birds are bringing you food. I guess that's normal to you guys because you're like, yeah, birds are bringing you food. That's great. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. The brook always dries up, you know. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So we went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little jar, water in a jar, so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. Surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make me a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour would not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken to Elijah. I want you to pay attention to the origin of where his God confidence came from. Elijah prophesies this drought. He prophesies the famine. And then God brings him out to the Kareth Ravine. The Kareth Ravine is east of the Jordan. Where is the promised land? The promised land is west of the Jordan. When they came up to the Jordan River under Moses and they sent the spies into the land, they had to cross the Jordan to get into the promised land. The first place that they get, that they attack, is a city called Jericho. And that's when they stepped into the promised land. One and a half tribes stayed on the east side of the Jordan, and God was like, fine, you can stay there. It's okay. It's not as good as over here, but whatever. And so there were some tribes east of the Jordan, but I want you to understand, the place where God called him to was outside of the promised place that God had intended for the Israelites to live. The promised land was west of the Jordan, and God says, I want you to leave the place of promise and go to a place of isolation. Do not stay in this place. I've promised this place to you and your ancestors through Abraham that I will Number you as, as much as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. This will be a place of abundance flowing with milk and honey. And I want you to leave the place that I promised you and go outside the place of promise to a place of isolation. This doesn't sound like the plan I would have written for myself had I been Elijah. Elijah. 
Why did God call him out of the place of promise? God, can't you just clean all this up? Can't you just clean it all up and bring back the promise? And This is where I'm supposed to be. This is what you promised our ancestors. And God says, no, no, no. What was the place of promise has become the place of disobedience. And I'm going to bring you out of the place of promise because of this, because I don't want you to live in a place of disobedience. So I'm willing to take you out of this place that was meant for one thing but's become something else because you are more in danger in living in a place of disobedience than you are living in a place of isolation. But for us, we're so afraid of the isolation. We're so afraid of being alone. We're so afraid of being misunderstood. We're so afraid of moving to a place that we don't understand, that we stay in the place of disobedience because it was at one time blessed. God, bring the blessing back, and God goes, no, leave the place of disobedience. Now, this may be a physical place, as Emily was talking about. This may be a place in your own heart. God did not want Elijah to live in the place of disobedience. It was better to be obedient outside of the promised place than it was to be disobedient inside of it. Disobedience and idolatry will make a wasteland of a promised place. But God, you called me here. Look at the fruit. Look at the blessing. But I said to go. Go to the Kareth Ravine. I'm going to feed you with birds. Do you think they regurgitated it like they feed their own? Is that too much? Or do you like to picture they came with like the most beautiful fruit and were like, then washed it off? I'm just saying being fed by ravens may not sound, might not be as cool as it sounds. Disobedience and idolatry will create a wasteland of a promised place. But obedience will create an oasis of a dry and a barren place. I remember a couple hundred years ago, I used to play professional basketball overseas where Romy and I met in Australia. It was great living. Made a good living, traveled the world, worked nine months out of the year. And then in a moment, in one of my off-season visits back here, God called me to retire and to begin a life in ministry. Sounds great, right? So that means I get hired on, big church, big salary, get to travel the world, preaching the gospel everywhere. Well, not exactly. See, for some of us, that's what we think ministry is like. God's called me to the ministry. When do I get to preach? Where's my stage? Where's my pulpit? Where's my microphone? Where's my moment? <laughs> the fact is, I retired and, and, and began work as an intern at a church that was not on a stage, was not with a microphone. In fact, I went from tens of thousands of cheering fans and signing autographs every day to scrubbing toilets because that's what the job entailed. I went from working nine months out of the year and playing golf, I mean training for the other three months of the offseason, to working 90-hour work weeks. And that whole year I got paid $10,000 for the whole year 
working 90 hours a week scrubbing toilets. You ask me what does ministry look like? That's what ministry looks like. That's my ministry origin story of working for a church and working in ministry and getting involved in what we were doing. In that season, I, you should see our resume. It was not resume. What do you call it? Job description. It was hilarious. It had all these random jobs that we were supposed to do. At the end, it said, do whatever it takes. And so basically just means doesn't matter what's on the job description. Just be ready to do anything. They're like, yeah, that's awesome. Can I tell you those two and a half years, it was two and a half years, right, were so instrumental in me learning how to love people. I thank God for those two and a half years. Because as I'm scrubbing toilets, can I have a sidebar on church toilets, by the way? Can I speak to the ladies? Why are ladies' bathrooms so much worse than men's bathrooms? Men, can I talk to you for a minute? Why do you not flush the stinking urinal? What is your problem? To this day, the thing that annoys me the most is to see an unflushed toilet. If I'm in a public restroom, I don't care what country I'm in, how dirty it's in, I will flush that toilet because there is nothing worse than an unflushed urinal. It's not that hard. And if you didn't flush it, you probably didn't wash your hands either. So I'm, I'm pretty sure those people, they go hand in hand. Just flush the toilet. It's not hard. I had to try to get the ladies back because I lost them on the previous comment. So. so we're scrubbing these toilets, right? And I wasn't like, God, how long do I have to do this before I get to preach? I'm scrubbing these toilets and thinking, Wow. Thank you, Lord. And I'm scrubbing them, and God goes, I remember that very clearly. It was in the women's bathroom. Um, I had a sign. No one else was in there. It's okay. I'm scrubbing this toilet. God says, this one's pretty dirty, isn't it? <laughs> you see, Lord. And I literally was going, God, why can't people clean up their own mess? Like, they just think someone's going to come behind them and, do it all for him. Like that's the expectation people have. I'm not complaining, but just wondering, God, have I done that before? And just left a mess. And God says, it's pretty dirty, isn't it? And I said, yeah, it is. He said, the lives that I'm going to help you clean up are a whole lot dirtier than this bowl. And if you can't clean up people's mess here, you'll never be able to clean up their mess when they start to bring their heart to you. And I looked at that toilet and I went, you know what, the three previous ones, I don't think I cleaned enough. I want to go back and clean it some more. Now, I'm not the cleanser of your heart. Jesus is. The process of the Holy Spirit is what does that. But I thank God for my Careth Valley moments, cleaning toilets. And yet what the Lord was providing for me was not a great big salary, not preaching opportunities, not fame, none of that stuff. He was showing me what it meant to help clean up people's lives. He was showing me that ministry is a towel and a foot washing bowl. It's not the thousands that get to listen to you speak. I never forgot those moments, and I thank God for them. And I scrubbed toilets a whole lot better after that day.
I learned and grew so much in that time, and we made great friends along the way. We really did, just serving God together. But then that brook dried up, just like the brook for Elijah, and the Lord spoke again. And he called us to move out from that place to start a new work that has now become Seashore Church. Now, by this time, I was on a decent salary, had health benefits, retirement plan. Church had grown significantly, and I went from the intern to the senior associate pastor running the whole church and movement with two other people. And yet God said, it's time to go. You know, if God had called me to go at the time that I was scrubbing toilets, I probably would have heard him a whole lot better. But he always calls you at the most inopportune times and moments. I'm doing a wedding yesterday, and I'm reading the vows, conducting a wedding, reading the vows. And in the middle of the ceremony, reading the vows, the Lord speaks to me about something I have not been doing with Romy that I should have been doing. And I'm like, you have to do this now? I'm in the middle of conducting a wedding. And the Lord's like, you need to repent of this thing. And I'm like, all right. It's always the most inopportunity, inopportune moment when God chooses to speak. But God said it was time to go. You see, God always gives us freedom of choice, but he doesn't give us freedom of consequences, does he? To stay where I was, in the comfort of where I was, would have meant to disobey God. And it would have created a wasteland for me of what was a place of blessing. But to obey and go, I knew from experience, would have created an oasis of blessing and provision. And this is exactly what God did for Elijah. I'm calling you to a place outside of the place of promise, but it's in that place that I'll provide for you. Now, here's what I want you to understand about the heart of God. Very often, God will bring you to a place where the only way you can be provided for is by His supernatural hand. He'll do it. If you've been brought to a place where if God doesn't come through, I'm sunk. If you've been brought to a place where I need the supernatural provision of God or this whole thing isn't going to work out, boy, are you in a great place. My encouragement to you is to obey the word of the Lord in that place because he will never fail to provide for you. But he will bring you to a place where you require the supernatural to be provided for you. And it's a good place to be. If I'm in a place where I don't require God's supernatural provision for me, I'm either not thinking big enough or I've disobeyed God somewhere along the way. He will provide for you every single time. He brought food to Elijah by bird, not DoorDash, bird. I'm going to bring you food by bird. Like, that is supernatural provision. you got to think every month. At some point, was Elijah like, bird's a little late today, you know? I mean, that's, yeah, that's me. I don't know. Or do you think he sent some food back? I asked for medium rare. That's medium. Who knows? But you understand the significance that they brought him meat and bread every night. God is repeating the provision he made for the Israelites that we read about in the book of Exodus for the Hebrews of bringing them meat and bread every single day. He's reminding him that as I provided for your ancestors in the desert, I'm repeating the scene so you'll remember that I'm the same yesterday and today and forever. I want you to understand that I've taken away every other source of provision from you so that you know that I am the one who provides. I'm taking away everything you think you need to show you that I'll provide. Sometimes God takes you to a place outside 
of the provision of man, outside of the blessing of man, to show you that he is just as much of a provider as he is a deliverer. God brought them into a desert. He delivered them into a desert. Well, he wasn't intending for the desert for them. He was intending for the promised land. But he not only delivered them, he also provided for them. And in fact, it was a lack of faith in God's ability as a provider that caused some of the Hebrews in the desert to go, we want to go back into captivity because although you delivered us, we still can't believe you as our provider. If you find yourself in a Carath Valley season, understand he's not just your deliverer from the past, he's your provider for the present. And he's the giver of dreams. He's the fulfiller of what he promises. He'll bring you to a place where you only have the provision that he has for you. But in this place, often, you can wonder, why did you bring me here? Why am I sitting at the lunch table by myself every week if you're in school? Why am I having a hard time finding a partner? When you commit your life fully to Him, He will provide for you. It may not be in the place you want. It may not be at the time you want. It may not come in the package you thought it would, but it will be a supernatural blessing that you could not have gotten on your own. I mean, you could have gotten something. You could have married someone. You could have ended up somewhere, sure. But God did not provide for you. He did not prepare for you just something, just someone, or just somewhere. He designed you with purpose, with intent, and with design. Psalm 139, verse 13 says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Maybe it's time to start thanking God for our Kareth Ravine season. And that what feels like a setting aside could be God sparing you the drought and famine that's coming in what used to be the place of promise. When we obeyed God at the call to move out to begin what is now Seashore Church, we were told by several people that we were crazy to do this. Why would you leave this place? It's finally at the place where it's good for you, right? We were told we'd have no friends in the process. <laughs> and I said, well, I got one. <laughs> right? And in the process, God added more. We were told things like, your name will be ruined. We were said, you'll need their money to do this, meaning other people, not anybody specifically. But you'll need money to do this, and you don't, you don't have any. Now, I knew this is just that Jezebel voice spoken through other people. I don't blame the people that said that. I understand it's a Jezebel voice that comes in and goes, you don't have their money and you're going to need it. You know what the translation of that voice is? God will not provide for you if you obey him. Anybody ever heard that voice? Yeah, you know what God said, but if you do that, he won't provide for you. You won't have the husband you're going to want. You won't have the wife you're going to want. You won't have the kids. You won't have the job. You won't have the retirement. It's the constant voice of Jezebel that questions God's ability to provide for those who hear and obey his word. Elijah is an example that he will give you food from birds if you need it. He'll provide a brook when everything else dries up. I even had one of my colleagues say, 
as I was expressing to him what God was speaking to us, he goes, I felt that call too to plant a church. But I've gotten pretty comfortable. It was an honest admission. And inside me, alarm bells are going off. And I went, do you know what you just said? Now, I don't know that this person was disobeying God by where they are, because that's between them and God. But I do know that disobedience and idolatry will create a wasteland of a promised place. But obedience will create an oasis of blessing in a dry and barren place. It's time to go back. I think I'll do the second half of this next week. Is that right? It's time to go back. What God does with Elijah after this Kareth Valley season is pretty significant. Where God calls Elijah is not necessarily where I think Elijah would have picked to begin this great ministry that God had called him to. I'm going to pick that up next week as we continue this series. It'll be Elijah part two. But Elijah hears another call. First it was, get out of the place of promise and disobedience and obey me to go to a dry and barren place. And in the dry and barren place, I will provide for you. And God did what he said he was going to do. And then he goes, now it's time to get up and move somewhere else. Sometimes we think we've finished one season and now comes the big reward. Now comes the now comes the partner. Now comes the, the kids. Now comes the house. Now comes the, the notoriety and the ministry. But that's not exactly where God called Elijah. We're going to pick up on that next week. Can I pray for you this morning? Because I, I really felt strongly about this Kareth Valley. That there's many who have feel like I've been called out of the place that, of promise and into a season of isolation. You know, for COVID... I know that's how a lot of people found us in that season. They just realized that I've got to leave the places that I was in or forced out due to doors closing and jobs going away and the military kicking you out, whatever it was. And you found, you, you came to a place like our house churches that aren't that impressive. I love them. But from the outside, it's like, oh, this isn't the thing I'm used to. But you got fed by ravens, and you had a brook that provided fresh water. And in that season of small gatherings and house churches, which I love, and prayer meetings, they were powerful. We ate food brought to us by birds, and we felt the presence of the Lord. And I know for many of us, you have that feeling of, I just want to stay here forever. But the brook dries up. And when it does, it's time to go. And it's time to go back. That I believe the Lord is calling us back to some of the very places that disobeyed and lost the anointing. And as a result, obedient people had to leave. And I believe that where God is calling us is back to the very places that we left. Even in our own hearts, 
God, the, the devastation in my heart drove me to an isolated season. And it's a season where I felt like all I had was you, but in that place you provided for me. And God goes, I want to come back to that very place in your heart that was desolated, and I want to heal that very place in your heart. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 that Emily was talking about. I want to heal the place in your heart that drove you to that to begin with. There are some physical places that God's going to call you to. He's going to call you back in too. I'll talk about why that is next week. But can I pray for you? Well, Father, we thank you, first of all, that you are our deliverer. As you delivered the Hebrews from Egypt, from the oppression that they were in, what a great and glorious day. What a scary day for them as they stepped through dry land on the Red Sea on their way to the promised land. They saw your miracles, but yet it was a little bit scary about what was coming up. I thank you, Lord, that you are our deliverer. But God, we also thank you that you are our provider. You provide streams in the desert. We see deserts blooming all over this nation, all over this country. We see Bangladesh blooming right now, blossoms blooming of the gospel and of ministers being raised up all across that nation, of, of workers committed to you, of Muslims turning to Jesus, seeing visions of the man in white and being saved and healed and delivered. We see massive healings going all across that nation. In Jesus' name, let a wave of healing go over Bangladesh right now. In Turkey, we see that hearts of the Turkish people being turned back to you. In Virginia Beach, in Norfolk, in Hampton Roads, and in this nation, let waves of blessing, waves of revival go out from this place. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your continued provision for us. I pray that you speak to all of us over this coming week about what you're sending us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Sometimes I hate doing that, breaking it into two parts, because I never know if that one made sense. But next week we're going to talk about where God called Elijah from there. All a part of origin stories. Thank you for joining us today. For more resources like this or to find information about our weekly services, visit seashorechurch.com.